Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you in the Lord's house this morning. You may remain standing for the word, the reading of the word. We are in the book of James. Welcome each one of you here, especially if you're visiting with us. We're delighted to have you to our early morning service. The psalmist said, early will I seek thy face. And so that's what we do here at PCPC on Sunday morning. We're reading from the letter that James, the brother of our Lord, wrote to the churches in the early years of the Christian church. And we're in chapter 4, and we're beginning verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet do you not know what tomorrow will bring? What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And you may be seated. The tone of this portion of the letter is that of admonition and rebuke. Rebuke. James, who, as we've mentioned almost every time, was the, the bishop or the pastor, the lead pastor of the home church, the church in Jerusalem, where the disciples had gathered following the ascension of Jesus, where they had returned to the place Jesus told them to go, not back to Nazareth, to Galilee, but to Jerusalem. And there the Spirit of God had fallen upon them and baptized them and filled them with great power at Pentecost. And there Peter had preached, and there the apostles had stayed pretty much together and continuing in fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in the word of God and in prayer and administered daily in the temple, going in for all the temple exercises, the morning prayers and the afternoon prayers and everything that took place in the temple, they would go to the temple and participate. But there there was an excitement and a newness because everything they saw had a new meaning to it. When they saw the lambs being sacrificed, they knew that was Christ. 
When they heard the prayers being lifted up, they knew that it was the intercessory work of the Lord who had now had ascended. It was at the right hand of the throne and was making intercession for them. And everything they did in that early church had a, 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 a vivid and stark reminder of the most recent days that they had had with Jesus. And what James does, more particularly than any of the other writing um, disciples of Christ, was a recall, a recollection, a memory of the teachings of Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus had admonished his disciples about continually were certain capital sins. Murder, adultery, theft? No. <laughs> Hypocrisy, arrogance, pride, presumption. Sins of the deepest heart. Sins that beset all of us. And sins that keep us from coming to God on the right terms and serving Him with the right attitudes and living for Him and for His glory. These are the sins that beset us. And so he's, he, he's mentioning these. He's going through these. And this particular passage is largely about pride. It's more than just a simple pride in one's uh, accomplishments or one's person or one's character, but it is pride that moves to arrogance and to presumption. And he admonishes us in two general areas. The first one is that manifestation of pride whereby we judge others. And you can see automatically we put ourselves on the bench. We clothe ourselves with the robe. <laughs> we put in our hands the gavel and we have before us the law and we render judgment. That's what the word means. It means to judge, to criticize, to critique, to, to render an opinion and an assessment. Do we ever do that toward one another? Do we ever just immediately and instinctively pass judgment upon others? So he warns us about that as a um, manifestation of the pride that's in us. Thinking of ourselves, as Paul says, more highly than we ought to think. And so he admonishes us with respect to judging a fellow believer, a brother. And then he also admonishes us against a presumption that centers in ourselves where we think we have the self-sufficiency to do whatever we want to do and to go forth and do it according to our own plans and at the same time ignore our frailty, our finitude, and our weaknesses and the brevity of life and the inability of us to really number our days. So these two things are before us. And in the first instance, he corrects us by pointing out that there is a supreme 
lawgiver. That we may judge, but there is really only one who judges. A supreme lawgiver and judge who is Christ. And against presumption, he warns us that there is really one sovereign Lord, one who controls all, and that our lives need to be a submission to his permission. If the Lord wills. So there's only two here, and then he warns us again that if we know these things, if we have this teaching, if we have this awareness and don't act upon it and don't live according to it, then that is sin. And the last word that's used in the passage, it is sin. And the word here, sin, of course, is the most commonly used word in the New Testament, the word hamartia, which means we miss the mark. So here it is in summary. James is admonishing us, rebuking us, and I would like to say counseling us. It is neuthetic. It is counseling that admonishes us not to miss the mark. Not to lose the perspective and live our lives differently than the way the Lord in his teaching had outlined for us to live. Now let's look at the two of these quite briefly. The first one is the one who speaks against his brother. This is the word for slander. It is forbidden by commandments in both Leviticus and in Numbers. And in Numbers particularly, it is a, a rebuking or a slandering of authority. You remember uh, Miriam and Aaron and Korah and others in the Old Testament from time to time looked at Moses and said to themselves, why is this stammering, stuttering shepherd who's been vacated from the people of God for 40 years, why should he be the one ruling over us and leading us? And so they slandered, they, they rebuked, they refused to, they spoke against authority. And that's really what this is, is to speak against, to slander authority and our own brothers. He said, when you do that, you're putting yourself in the position of the judge. And you're rendering the verdict. Paul says in Romans 14, they were just simply not to do that. In context, in Romans 14, he's talking about judging someone who eats meat. And those of you who, who followed that little uh, topic through the New Testament, especially in the Corinthian correspondence, you know that it was a scandal that the meat would be offered to the idols and then the meat, perfectly good meat, would be sold in the marketplace at a discounted price. And it was common for Christians to participate in that, go to the marketplace, buy that good cut of meat for a slightly cheaper price and enjoy a good meal. And there were others that were scandalized by that because that meat had been offered to idols. And they felt like to purchase that meat and to eat that meat was to participate in the idolatry of the pagans. 
This is an interesting how the application of the law takes on an incredible um, uh, nuance. And Paul's admonition to the people at Corinth and in his letter to the Church of Rome as well was that that is one of those things that we have to be careful that we don't rush to conclusions. It is a presumption to think that someone eating that good cut of meat and enjoying a nice meal is participating in the pagan uh, sacrifices. They're just enjoying a good meal. The gods are no gods anyway. The pagan gods have no reality. There's only one God. So it is a, an assertion of your confidence in the one true God to just eat that meat and enjoy it. On the other hand, there were people that were scandalized and felt like that was a, a serious breach of religious principles, of sacrifice. So you can see how we can get into a brother-to-brother -brother argument over that. One very, very deeply spiritual group says, oh, anything offered to idols, anything that smacks of that paganism should be avoided at all costs. And so you had a holiness group that drew text out of the Old Testament about separation and holiness, who used the analogy of the Levitical priesthood who ate the meat of the sacrifice in ancient Israel. A portion of the meat belonged to the, to the Levites and that was their, basically that was their food. And so they showed the deeply religious nature of this sacrifice. And another party would say, no, 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 you're missing the point. The pagan sacrifices and even the sacrifices of Israel were material things. The supreme understanding of spiritual sacrifices is in the Lord, the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of service. And so you can see how the parties would get to one another. And they would get to the point to where they would be, be uh, harsh and judgmental and Paul admonishes them to not do that, to not judge, to not critique and criticize to the point of harm and slander and bringing and casting aspersions upon your brothers. And so James is saying that to do that is a point of pride. It is a point of arrogance that you're lifting yourself up to be the judge and he asserts that there is only one supreme lawgiver. And that, of course, is Jesus. You remember that in the book of John, one of the teachings of Christ is that he is the lawgiver. If you had read Moses, you would know me, for he spoke of me. Jesus is the focus and the content of the Mosaic law. And Jesus was the only one that perfectly fulfilled it. And because of that, the Bible says that all judgment is given to the Son. The only one that's capable of, of judging is the one who's kept the law. And when you're judging and slandering, you are not keeping the law. You're not a doer of the law. You've set yourself up as a judge. And so he asked a question in each case, and here's the question that I'll ask for you. The question he asked for there, he says, who are you? <laughs> if we did nothing else this morning but ask that question of ourselves, 
I think it would be a good spiritual exercise. It'd be worth the morning meditation, the little homily time that we have together at the first hours of the first day of the week here on Sunday morning. Who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to be presumptuous? Who are you to critique and criticize and fine-tune the spirituality and pass judgment upon one another? James wants to put us where we belong. And that is not only at the foot of the cross where the ground is level, but he wants us on our knees. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Who are you? Who am I? Who are we that we can be like that in our heart? This is sin of the heart. Deep, I can't, I can't, only you and your conscience can ask yourself that question and see where you are in your life and in your relationship with others. There's one supreme lawgiver, and Jesus points out that this particular judge has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell and to give life eternal. So judge it all in the light of Christ and his verdict. Know that there is justice with God, righteousness with God with no compromise and no shadow of aberration. But there is mercy with God. Only the infinite God himself can judge aright. Abraham asked the great question, will not the judge of all the earth do right? God will make the right choice. He will render the right verdict. And it will be a verdict that is tinged with mercy, long-suffering, and grace. The Christian faith, when rightly understood, has the highest ethic, the highest standard of behavior and thought, word and deed, that the human race has ever known. It is not even a close comparison between the ethic of Christianity and what Christ taught us and how we're to live our lives and any other world religion. We are called to a life that reflects the glory and the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So we go beyond the easy and the obvious in the commandments of thou shalt not steal, and kill, commit adultery, covet, etc. Christian ethic drives us to the very heart. What is the attitude, the, the, the inclination of your heart, the proclivities of your behavior? Who are you? Well, let's look at the second one real quickly. He said, come now. And then here he talks an interesting little illustration about the, the great uh, merchant class that uh, comes upon us. And they were known, they were, they were well known in the ancient world and they're well known still today. And that is the, the entrepreneurial um, impulse that takes men 
and women to other places for the purpose of doing business and making a profit. And uh, there's nothing wrong with any of that, of course. But here's what the presumption is. The presumption is you do it based upon your own calculations of your own capacity and you don't consider the Lord. Let me just read it again. So today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there. See, presumption of a lifetime of a year and make trade and will profit. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And he asked the question there, what is your life? If the question to us on the first count is, who are you? The question now is, what is your life? And he has a rather interesting um, assessment of our life. And in doing so, he quotes Psalm 39. Listen to the way the psalmist describes the human life. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing, or literally for breath, or for vapor, they are in turmoil. And man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. In other words, the pride there is the pride of human achievement, human ambition, and with no regard where God is in the mix, with no regard for what God may account for. Now, Jesus gives an awful sobering parable in the New Testament about this particular thing, and listen to the words of Christ. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And here's where it gets spiritual. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Here's the different perspective. Here's when you, when you reckon with the sovereign Lord. But God said to him, fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you're prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's what James is admonishing us about, is having a richness toward God, a treasure in God and not just in material things, and not just in the life we live and the way we live it. In fact, that's the whole promise of the covenant. You remember the first thing that God said to Abraham before they ever made the covenant way back there? The Lord said to Abraham, I am your exceeding great reward. If God had never given Abraham anything and he gave him a fortune, and he gave him promises, and Abraham became a, the great friend of God and the father of the faith. But before anything was ever proffered and before anything was ever realized, there was this I of the Lord says, I am your reward. And that is what the Lord's calling us to. He wants us to make him our great reward. And so here we have the question, what is your life? 
What is your life? Not only how long do you have, but quantity, but quality. What, what does it amount to? What have you accomplished? What have you accomplished in this world? Have you torn down your barns and built bigger ones? What have you accomplished in the Lord? What have you accomplished at the spiritual level? Are you saying to your soul, soul, take your rest, you've got it made. Or are you saying to your soul, soul, embrace Christ. Understand the sovereign Lord. There was a common phrase that was used all the time in ancient literature. It's called the Deo Valente. The Deo Valente. And it's if God wills. If God wills. And it was thrown around by the prophets and, and the poets and the um, leaders. And, and Paul used it over and over. If the Lord wills, we'll do this. The Lord. And it, it was a very common phrase. Here's what James does to it that makes it more significant. Is he doesn't use the word theos, God, but he uses the word kurios, Lord. And of course, he's speaking of Christ. In other words, it is the Lord's will. It is the Lord's will. We see this in Gethsemane when Christ is receiving the will of the Father. And we think of it as submission to his permission. If the Lord permits, whatever the Lord wills, whatever the Lord permits is where our lives are. Can you see how this is the, really the undoing, the downfall, the puncturing of the balloon of human pride? 